for listening to the audio podcast of Richard Hefner's Open Mind. For more information, visit 13.org slash open mind. I'm Richard Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. And today's program is about Generation on a Tightrope, a Josie Bass book offering a portrait of today's college student and written by Arthur Levine and Diane R. Dean. About Dr. Levine, who is president of the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation and my guest today, Howard Gardner writes that over the last four decades, he has become the premier analyst of continuities and changes in the American student population. Indeed, Arthur Levine has joined me here at this table many times over the years, mostly when he was the longtime president of Teachers College, Columbia University. In one of our conversations, he referred to Henry Adams' famous education, in which this son and grandson of presidents bemoaned the fact that their and his Harvard had so ill-prepared him for his times with a curriculum that had not changed in decades. Adams said that he had received an 18th century education when the world was plunging toward the 20th. In turn, Dr. Levine has noted that in a space of just a few years, education has now fallen even further behind the time particularly with today's pace of economic, social, and above all, technological change. And I would add, ask my guest, particularly in light of an extraordinary 2010 article of his titled Digital Students, Industrial Era Universities, whether this is in part what accounts for our generation on a tightrope. How about it, Arthur? First, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that's an important part of what we're seeing. Um, to put it as well as I can put it, what the nation is doing now is making a transition from a national analog industrial economy to a global digital information economy and, over, and all of our social institutions, whether we're talking about universities or schools or media or government, we're all built for the former. Okay, you say we're making a transition. And my question is, how are we doing? This is really hard stuff. And the reason it's hard is that for people living through it, these are sort of Rip Van Winkle times in which you go to bed, you wake up the next morning, and it's as if 20 years have passed. The pace is moving so quickly. I read a piece by Tom Friedman in which of the New York Times in which he said he'd written this book, The World is Flat, uh, to enormous praise. And he said as he looked through it, there were certain things that um, he realized were missing. Facebook hadn't been created yet. Twitter was a sound that was made at the time. 4G was a parking space. Skype would have been a typo for most people. The things that are entering our lives are just entering so quickly and what's changing dramatically is demographics, economics, technology, and globalization. And the schools? And the schools are not moving as quickly. No social institution is moving as quickly, and they all seem broken. 
Again, generation on a tightrope. What do you mean by that? This is a generation that is walking between two worlds. It's a world in which their parents live and a world in which they've been brought up and they're going to live. It's a generation that's trying to balance itself and not fall into a failing economy and has all the dreams that every previous generation had. It's a generation that doesn't fit well into the politics of America and is trying to tread between a society that's ideologically divided and a world in which they're entirely issue-oriented. So it's a generation at a crossroads. Could have been called that too. So the smart people in our universe, the university people, the academics, are they at all clued in to this uh, change? I think they're more disturbed by it than clued into it. What we find now is we have these digital natives, our students, attending analog universities and being taught by a faculty that are both, that are at best digital immigrants. It's not a good match. So what do you do? I think part of it is realizing the differences first. And so if you look at the universities, let's see, they are fixed in terms of location. And our students operate in any location. Uh, universities have fixed hours. We have semesters, we have credits, we have advising hours, and students who operate 24-7. And it's a generation that can't understand why when you write your professor at 3 o'clock in the morning, you don't have a response back by 8. Amazon does it. Why shouldn't my professor do it? It's a generation that tend to be concrete learners in a university that's abstract. It's a generation that tends to work together in a world in which, in an academic world, in which we really focus on the individual. And in fact, when people work together, we call it cheating. It's a world in which universities focus on teaching how long kids are taught at, and these kids are focused on learning. I think the other major difference between these guys, universities and students, is that universities tend to focus on depth. What they really care about, and we promote faculty based upon it, is how deep into your subject matter you go and the level at which you advance it at that depth. They're sort of like hunters going after something. In contrast, we have students who are floating in uh, a sea of data that's an inch wide or an inch deep. deep. And so what they're interested in is they're floating in breadth and they don't understand depth and they're gatherers. So we have gatherers being taught by hunters. It really doesn't fit very well. And there's also the reality we're dealing with blackboards and lectures with a generation that's interactive and digital. You're not just an observer as you write this. <clears throat> You're an educator. You're, you've long been an educator. You were president of Teachers College for a long time. How are you adjusting? Uh, to this tightrope situation? Well, I actually have it easy. I'm no longer at a university. But um, the reality for this is it's terribly, terribly confusing to universities about what they do. And we're in a situation right now, if you look at it beyond the individual university, let me describe it historically and say that when America went from an agrarian to industrial society, we had these colleges 
that came out of the Middle Ages in the United States, and they still taught the classical trivium and quadrivium. And students were still learning things like Hebrew, Syriac, Latin, and Greek, which didn't have a lot of currency in the industrial society. So Connecticut went to Yale and said, your curriculum's meaningless. We're not going to give you any more financial support. So what happened was we needed a new kind of higher education system. So we created universities, which would do advanced study, specialized, offer preparation for things like business and engineering, which were critical to the society. We created technical institutions like MIT that could advance an industrial society. We created normal schools because we needed teachers. And we, had, we started our first junior colleges because we want this stuff to be local. And we created land-grant schools, which straddled both worlds. And it took about 80 years for this to all gel and create the modern system of higher education, um, which was ratified with the California Master Plan in 1960. So fast forward, we're in a new era. What we found in the old era was that college presidents and campuses fought desperately to hold on to what they had. And we're finding the same thing now. One, it's confusing to universities. Which of these changes do you want to grab onto? Should we respond to the demographics? How about the fact that kids need new skills in a new economy that focus on outcomes rather than process? What about the fact that there's all this new technology floating around? Should universities grab onto that? Or maybe they ought to grab onto globalization. I don't know a university that isn't talking about becoming global. I also don't know any university that knows what it means. So universities have the problem of trying to figure out where to go. And the second issue is it's hard to change. We've always done things the way we've done them, and it seemed to be good a few years ago. Why isn't it good now? Something must be wrong with the kids. And that's where most schools are. A majority of college professors now, according to our study, are much more uncomfortable with their students than they were even a few years ago. It's funny, Arthur, that you say that, but I know that um, this is the result of your studies. Uh, I find myself as a college professor resolving that I've got to do the opposite. I've got to become comfortable with them. Uh, I know they're not going to uh, live in my world. Uh, I've got to live in theirs. How, do, how does the academy prepare to live in this new world? I know Adam said to Eve, we're in a period of transition. <laughs> How do we do this successfully? Keep away from apples. So that <laughs> um, for us, it's going to come by successful approximations. What do you mean? What happens is we're not going to change all at once. We're going to see our universities. Universities have to get past this point at which we say our students are lazy. They only use Wikipedia, in which they say, our students expect us to be servants, in which they say, our students don't understand what it means to be an academic. They're all engaged in cheating, which is very often seen as file sharing. And you can see some small changes happening. More and more faculty are explaining to students and putting in their syllabi what cheating means. We're seeing more and more professors begin to use technology, some not well, but they're trying to use it. 
PowerPoints are omnipresent in college classrooms. What's going to happen is that digital natives are going to start entering the professoriate should this generation ever retire. So that... Um, now, 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 please. <laughs> well, some people shouldn't retire because they're, they have such expertise to right. young people. Right. And what's also going to happen is what's happening now. We're going to see massive changes, and this is what happened in the past, at the periphery of higher education. What we're going to see is new kinds of projects develop. We're seeing new kinds of institutions develop. I think the model for the future of a university, and it doesn't mean that we don't need research universities, and it doesn't mean that we don't need liberal arts colleges, we're going to see a new breed of higher education develop, which is going to be open access or universal access. It's going to be low cost. It's going to be digital. It's going to be outcome-based, and it's going to focus on competencies rather than simply time to degree. It'll also be time variable. I can understand why you say uh, we've got to, when we get rid of this older generation of teachers, and you mentioned before the real estate involved here. What's the investment that higher education now has in its real estate? Has anyone researched that? No, I have no idea what the answer is, but it's got to be huge. And Look at New York City where we're taping this. We have universities that dot the entire city. If those were changed into skyscrapers, what would that land be worth? We're talking billions and billions and billions. I wonder if we're talking trillions. I was going to say to you that I think we're talking trillions. You go across this nation. You think of the campuses that we've seen and then the ones we haven't seen. Uh, yeah. And our study found something very, very interesting. The, new, the traditional college student, 18 to 22, full-time, living on campus, sort of the image of the college student, constitutes less than a fifth of all college students. The new majority is over 25. They are working. They're part-time. They have other lives. College isn't their biggest interest. And what they're telling us is, we asked, what kind of relationship do you want with your college? And their answer was, um, sort of like I have with the utilities company, my uh, internet provider, and the bank. And you think to yourself, what do I want from my bank? Well, let's see. I want an ATM on every corner, nobody in line when I get there, my check deposit immediately, maybe the day before it arrives, and no mistakes unless they're in my favor. They're saying the same thing to college which is, I'm looking for convenience. Give me classes 24 hours a day unless you can do it more frequently. In-class parking wouldn't be bad. What they're saying beyond that is, look, I need service. And I'm depending upon service. The registrar and financial aid office should be there to help me, not to play gotcha. I want high quality instruction and I want low cost. Arthur, what about the possibility of um, the academy saying, no dice. That's the technical future. Do what you want, but we maintain our, I was going to say standards, and no, I won't, our patterns. Mm -hmm. We be maintain our ancient prejudices. That's happening, isn't it, to some extent? To some extent, but you can also see reforms or attempts at reform. Uh, we're seeing MOOCs begin to develop. 
which begin to look like what I described higher education becoming in the future. Are they going to be historically important? Who knows? Trends. We can see experiments. Oh, MOOCs. MOOCs. Massive, online, open enrollment, or high end, whatever it stands for, uh, courses, which can have 100,000 students at a shot. Um, those kinds of things are coming out of places like Stanford and MIT and colleges around the country that are beginning to experiment, though faculties have been critical. What will happen to higher education is there'll be some movement. We'll see some changes. Um, what'll push it is that the demographics are bad for higher education on the East Coast. There are too many institutions for population in the middle Atlantic states, New England, and the Midwest, and they can't sustain all that higher education. There's also going to be competition uh, from all kinds of organizations, knowledge organizations, publishers, uh, media organizations, libraries, museums, are all beginning to enter the world of education and offer courses. So if higher education doesn't adapt, there'll be other people that do adapt. There are going to be demographic pressures. And we're going to see movement very quickly in the West by non-traditional providers California's experienced a tidal wave of 500,000 new students. They can't accommodate that with the public higher education system, and they can't keep building plant. They've got to do something different, which is going to be digital, and, and it's got to be something that'll be open access. And if they don't do it, we're going to see other organizations just spring into action. You know this, well, you do know, of course, not that you were around at the time, but you do know because you're a scholar. This is a repeat of another technological, would-be revolution with television. Uh, television was going to replace the classroom, or if not replace it, it was going to be an addition that meant for teachers they were on their way out. Uh, also at a time when the numbers of dollars that were being invested after the war, right after the Second World War, was so great that television was going to be the savior. It didn't work then. And I gather you feel that the digital revolution is so thoroughgoing in our time that it will work now. You were one of the people who played a very large role in television. And you're going to be able to answer this question better than I can. But my response would be, it's a different kind of medium. This is a kind of medium well, television is one-way communication, mm -hmm. not so much different than sitting in a classroom. What we're talking about now is a technology which is interactive, individualizable, and offers all kinds of other attributes that television couldn't possibly touch. Um, didn't offer human contact and didn't offer that much that was different. I think this one's going to spread rapidly, and we can see it already in terms of the new kinds of applications, new kinds of organizations, um, the new kinds of changes we're seeing. Media is probably the best place to look at what's happened. Higher education is, it's really provider driven. The college decides what it is they're gonna offer. In contrast, media is consumer driven, which is I go buy what I wanna buy. And what we've seen are dramatic changes in media We've seen the traditional companies brought to their knees. Who could imagine 
that the Washington Post and the Boston Globe would be sold for a total of $325 million. Those are major companies, but they're being replaced by all kinds of uh, digital alternatives and people are gravitating toward them quickly. There's no reason to believe that that won't happen in every other sector. All right, now you're talking about this new model, a commercial model to some important extent? It, it's gonna depend. Uh, there are two options. There'll certainly be a lot of commercial stuff. There is now. Yeah, I mean, Twitter is going public. So that um, we're gonna see a lot of it. There are a lot of ways to commercialize this. And we're seeing um, for-profit higher education expand quickly. On the other hand, there's nothing intrinsic to this that requires that it be for-profit. There's no reason why an organization can't offer this kind of program. When we saw universities get created, they could have been for-profit. When we saw MIT get created, it could have been for-profit. They didn't go that way. I think with state support and other kinds of um, incentives, we can still end up with a higher education system that's not for profit, but we need policy that's going to move us that way. Well, we also need to resist uh, the uh, temptation to make a lot of to make a bundle of dough out of the universities, don't we? Many of the new providers yeah. don't see it that way. What they're viewing higher education as is sort of the next healthcare, which is to say it's weak in leadership low in technology use, high in cost, and low in productivity. That's a pretty picture, isn't it? It's ripe for entrance of the for-profit community. And we're seeing that. They're entering into this sphere because it looks like an incredible opportunity. And it also has other attributes. Here's an industry which is government subsidized in which it's counter-cyclical. And what that means is when the economy's in trouble, this one booms. It's a growth industry and an information economy. You pay up front, which means that there's this huge cash flow at the start of this thing when students enroll. The payments are dependable and they're large. It's not like selling milk every day. So this is a great industry and the private sector sees it. Does that disturb you? Yeah, it does. I've spent my whole life in universities. And what's painful to watch is the slowness with which they're responding to the changing realities and putting themselves at jeopardy. I saw a conversation between two governors, Governor Hunt of North Carolina, former four-term governor, and Governor Kane of New Jersey, who'd been a two-term governor and university president, and three college presidents. And the two governors said, the system we have now is not sustainable, given cost. And they also said, there's no reason to believe that the public will continue to pay whatever you choose to charge in higher education, which is accelerating at a very quick pace. And the university president said, you have the wrong question. What we need is quality. And what they meant was quality is an indicator of everything they're already doing. We need quality. And the only question is not what it costs, because we need that to compete in an information economy. But who pays? So whatever we charge is a reasonable price. And it's just that we're forcing this on our students. 
government ought to pay more. That's not a sustainable argument. And listening to presidents make that argument is important. My big fear is that higher education does important things that nobody else does. It has, it engages in basic research. And no other organization does that, not business, not the private sector, because it doesn't lead to immediate cash. So you're concerned that may go by the board. Yeah. And what I'm also concerned about is higher education has a function, which is it's the conservative of our past. And one of the things that higher education does is transmit that past to our students and to the world. Another thing that's terribly important, and no other organization has the credibility to do this, is higher education is a critic of society. And what it does is it raises large questions. During the McCarthy era, it raised questions. During other periods of stress, it raised questions. We need those questions asked, and we need a non an independent organization to raise those questions. So that I'd be horrified if we lost those things. I'd be horrified if we lost residential colleges in the way that we have them now. Uh, it was once said that the best college, it was said by President Garfield, that the best college he could imagine was Mark Hopkins, 19th century president of Williams College, on one end of a log and a student on the other. We stand to lose that. Traditional higher education has watered it down greatly, but we still have it in some places. Fact of the matter is, if you have 2,000 kids in the class, that fills the log pretty well. <laughs> I can't figure out, and we have too few seconds left, whether I'm looking at a optimist or a pessimist about this whole business. I'm incredibly optimistic. I think we're moving toward a new world, which will provide greater equity than what we're seeing now, enormous opportunity, and an extraordinary future. I think we need this generation of young people to be part of that future. And colleges have the capacity, I love them, to make the changes that are necessary. We will end up with a vibrant higher education system. The only question is how we do it. I'd like today's universities to make the transition. That's a good place to end. <laughs> Arthur Levine, thank you for joining me today. And thanks, too, to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time. Meanwhile, as another old friend used to say, good night and good luck. And do visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to reprise this program online right now or to draw upon our archive of 1,500 or so other Open Mind and related programs. That's 13.org slash openmind.